It seems that a while back, uh, as people followed you, you were really into peace at any, not at any cost, but just very peaceful. Peaceful means for revolution. And uh, I read an article in Ramparts, and you were into uh, violent revolution. And now... Uh, I'm not. Well, that's what it, that's yeah. what it stated. No, the article in Ramparts was, uh, was uh, basically so, about uh, socialism, right? And uh, I don't believe in violent revolution. I, Yoko stated it very well, which is uh, violent revolutionaries are playing the same establishment game. I believe in uh, some of the things Jerry Rubin and A.B. Hoffman have done, like the theater in court kind of revolution. I believe in the, the revolution of happening and that artists, Yoko says artists don't create. A woman, any woman can create, a man can destroy with a Coke bottle, and an artist revalues. If I'm a revolutionary, or we are revolutionaries, we're revolutionary artists, not gunmen. I believe in the Black Panther original statement, the 10-point program, which is not violent, which says, uh, to defend yourself against attack, I might consider that, mm. but uh, uh, anything else I don't consider. So I'm still for peace, peaceful revolutionary, but I'm an artist first, and a politician second. Week's when they was fab. I'm Ed Chan, and I'm John Stone. Well, pretty big week, uh, Beatle wise. Yes, Paul showed up at the concert for Taylor Hawkins in London at Wembley, and he did "Oh Darling," which is a big surprise. Is uh, it's something we yeah. <laughs> all collectively wanted for a while. He did it as a duet with Chrissy Hine, though. Yeah, duet is being kind. Uh, he let. Chrissy do a fair bit of the heavy lifting, not all of it. It is a duet. Well, I mean, he had to record it day after day for a while, you know, when he did it for a recording. It's not an easy thing to sing. And then he did Helter Skelter. It's it's very much worth seeking out. I'm glad that he did it. Taylor was a good friend of Paul's. And of course, you know, there's, there's that whole Foo and Paul connection. He didn't just show up to be a celebrity to honor Taylor. I mean, he was actually friends. Very personal connection. The only question remaining on that is there's going to be a part two of that concert in Los Angeles at the end of the month. Is Paul going to show up again? We'll see. He hadn't called me yet, so I'm not real sure. <laughs> okay. So the other thing that's happened actually today uh, is that, uh, well, first off, Ringo is back on the road. He's starting up his tour again. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed. He can make it through the next six, seven weeks. Yeah, well, 
I'm counting on him. It should be interesting. He put out a video, and uh, amongst the other things, he showed off EP3. <laughs> Yay, EP3. is coming real soon now. Yeah, showing a little love to that project. And he showed off the revolver box. The front cover is uh, the front cover, except there's the all the type and the uh, labels are no longer there. It's right. just, just just Klaus Klaus's original illustration, right? Uh, and then we we also got to see the rear of the uh, box, and you can read enough of it that the track list that's out there is indeed the actual track list. Yeah. Four CDs, an EP with Rain and Paperback Writer, and no Blu-ray. Yeah. No surround mix on in the box, which some people are complaining about. It's not perfect, but I never expected a, a box set from Revolver, to tell you the truth. Especially now. It was kind of a, oh, well, that'll happen somewhere down the line. I was really thinking they'd pick back up at the 60th and then start off from there, which I mean, we're not quite there yet. I think the Peter Jackson technology is probably a lot better than we suspected is. Right. Although you can do a, a fair bit with just commercial demixing technology. There's some mixes that folks have put done and put out on the internet, which are really pretty spectacular. So I'm looking forward to what Giles can do with the top level of everything. I just wonder whether they're going to put out a box set for the uh, oldies, but goldies. Uh, well, I mean, we what we know is we know that uh, Rubber Soul is going to be next, and there are heavy rumors that they're at least mostly, if not completely, done with the D-Mix on that. Wow. So next year is uh, for rubber soul is a very definite possibility as far as the the oldies uh album well i mean we don't have past masters as a remix remaster we don't have magical mystery tour as a remix remaster yeah magical mystery tour certainly has to happen and for that matter we don't have yellow submarine yet i'm waiting for giles barton's mix of it's all too much i mean that's like that's got to be incredible. Yeah, that almost should have just been on the Pepper Box. I mean, it was a Pepper song more than anything else. To me, it's it's the kind of with all you need is love and you know that that stuff. But as far as a magical mystery tour by itself, I mean, we do have he did remix everything when the movie came out, right? So we got the EP remixed. So where's Hello Goodbye? Good question. So that's why when they get to the end of this, uh, well, I mean, most of the singles will have been out on the albums. Maybe that's <laughs> what all these EPs are for. We're not making you go out and buy a new EP collection. We've already given you all the EPs. <laughs> right. They're going to have some odds and ends at the end of it. And they're just going to have to do a box set called Tidying Up. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's always been that way, hasn't it? Right. That's why there was an American Rarities and a British Rarities. Giles Martin's version of um, Come Give Me Dinah Hunt. I still wouldn't mind them really seriously doing an American box. Get Giles Martin to do serious versions of what Dave Dexter was trying to do. <laughs> wow, that would be something. It worked with Let It Be. I mean, he managed to both present something which was respectful to the original and 
not Spectre. Right. But, you know, some of the reverb is the way I grew up on a lot of those songs. You know, I feel fine and all that stuff. It's I, I miss it when it's not there. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. You know, maybe there's a happy medium where for the one, the songs which are more particularly like that, where the reverb is not just baked in, but is almost essential to the way the song played in the U.S., there's certainly a full CD's worth of material on there. And, you know, as you say, odds and ends, the back from the CD era, you know, we had that full CD of mixes from around the world. I hope they're listening to this because they got all sorts of projects they could put together. <laughs> we got the rest of the albums to worry about first. And, well, we, we still haven't mentioned anything about Sometime in New York City because, well, we haven't heard anything about Sometime in New York City yet. And if it's going to be out on John's birthday, an announcement's going to be necessary real soon now. Maybe they just figure it could be all last minute because it's going to be the same 15 people that bought it the first time. <laughs> it could well be. But still, we're later than we've ever gotten between announcement and release if John's birthday is when they're going to do it. Right. The closest we'd ever come before was the Give Me Some Truth box from a couple of years ago, which was announced the very last end of August, and it came out on John's birthday. And so, well, we're into September now. I noticed. <laughs> Indeed. That takes us to our topic. We are talking about John and his politics and how his politics really changed over the years. This is evolution, and it wasn't a steady course, but he was kind of in some ways political from early early on i always felt like money was kind of a shot at the establishment choosing the way to do it the way he did and then of course right. choosing to pick it up again much later as part of his live set having that show up at toronto <laughs> right although you can't say anything about dizzy miss lizzie you should have done bad boy no politics there <laughs> You know, I want to start this conversation with something that John said in the RKO interview in 1980, which I think really, to me, sums up a lot of what Lenin thought about politics himself. What he said was that growing up in working class Liverpool had made him an instinctive socialist. It gave him a deep hostility to Britain's ruling class, a hatred of war, and a distinctive kind of weird verbal humor that's john yeah and that's his politics i think i don't think that alan owen wrote the characters of the beatles out of whole cloth and so that whole scene with the gentleman in the train car when they're talking about you know bet you sorry you won it was their attitude you know it's like we don't like the old ways it was part of their persona i don't think politics necessarily played any great part in any of their early lives. They were just boys playing rock and roll. But, you know, as their celebrity grew and they started talking to people of a more educated and more tied to politics, and it made an impact on them. The first thing that I want to bring up, which is a, a slightly well-worn story, on their first visit to Hamburg in 1960, Intending to head north towards Amsterdam, they drove east, straight through the centre of Rotterdam. This direction advanced them towards Arnhem, the scene, 16 summers earlier in September 1944, 
of one of the last big battles of the war. Williams had a cousin who was injured here and spoke often of his fallen comrades. He wanted to pay respects on his behalf. Barry Chang got out his camera and clicked the shutter as the Liverpool tourists paused at the main memorial tablet. And, you know, that's the famous, their name shall liveth forevermore photo. Right. Who's not in that photo? John Lennon's not in that photo. The question is, was there a reason that he was not in that photo? The story which has gone around, I think it was in Philip Norman first. It wasn't in the authorized biography as I remember it. The story is that, well, John stayed in the van because he took one look at the field of crosses and just got physically ill. You know, I don't know whether I necessarily believe that or not. Yeah, I don't know how to judge that story. And was that an assessment that John himself had? Or is it an observation of someone? As well as Barry Chang, two other passengers aren't in the photo. Herr Steiner, for whom Arnhem may have been a bridge too far, and John Lennon. He never explained his absence, nor was he asked, so it cannot be confirmed if Alan Williams is right when he says John stayed on the bus because the sight of so many graves, so many people his own age killed in combat, sickened him inside out. Although it should be noted that amongst the graves that were at the front end of the cemetery and that they probably would have seen, there was a private Peter Best, aged 19. That would have been a little disquieting. If Lennon would have seen it, he would have just ragged on that incessantly. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. So the other version of that story was that John boogered off to go and uh, do a little shoplifting. Yeah, I think that's the story that's in the authorized biography, is that he stole a harmonica. Afterwards, they drove into Arnhem itself for a look around. Wandering the city streets, the Beatles' first time in a foreign place, they found a music shop and piled in, keen to see the guitars. And while here, John slap-leathered a harmonica. That's the first real instance where we have of John possibly showing a political interest with a question mark on it. (laughs) The next time it really comes up significantly is the 64 tour. I mean, they go off on it a lot in eight days a week about the Beatles putting in this clause that we want these shows to be integrated. We don't want segregation at these shows. You have to sell tickets to anyone black or white. Right. But that goes way back. That recounting of it goes back to Hunter Davies' book. Given the way they were brought up, I can see why it's like, why on earth would we want to eliminate a significant chunk of our audience? You know, maybe it's not 50%, maybe it's not even 20%, but it's still, their money's as green as anybody else's. I can't see that it was necessarily a financial consideration. I, I think that that segregation aspect was just not part of who they were. I would assume that Brian Epstein actually controlled the contract. So You think it was just something that was brought up by the promoters? And, you know, as we've discussed, it was a whole boatload of different types of people. And so, you know, when someone brought it up and saying, we'd like this, you think it was Brian, or maybe Brian went to the band and they said, no, we're not going to allow that. Yeah. Most of those kind of restrictions were things like, you know, the venue, the auditorium has rules about that. And so it could be like, well, we won't play that. And they just insisted that the the audience be integrated. 
it's at least nominally a political issue, and it's one which became a much bigger deal as we move forward. It was a, a stance. I mean, it, it was reported in the papers at the time. And they were asked about it in, in a press conference on their way to Florida. I confronted Paul McCartney with reports that there might be segregation at their Gator Bowl concert in 1964 in Jacksonville. He made it clear the Beatles wouldn't stand for it. I think it'd be a bit silly to segregate people because, you know, I mean, I, I don't think uh, colored people are any different. You know, they're just the same as anyone else. But, you know, over here, there are some people who think that there's animals or something, but I just think it's stupid, you know. You can't treat other human beings like animals. And uh, so, you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't mind them sitting next to me. Great, you know, because that's the way we all feel. And a lot of people in England feel that way, you know, because there's never any segregation in concerts in England. And in fact, if there was, we probably then right about that time we get the first real bumping up of a beetle in what would become the peace movement and it wasn't john it was paul courtesy of living on wimpole street and having access to the literati shall we say paul learned that bertrand russell was uh, staying in the area i think you have to realize how much the extent of paul living in london had on his exposure to all sorts of ideas. And certainly there was an anti-nuclear movement and uh, there was an early peace movement in Britain regarding Vietnam. And again, it would have been amongst the academics more than, say, the working class where Paul would have been hanging out with in Liverpool. It amuses me a little bit that Paul could just, A, get Bertrand Russell's address, right. and B, just sort of walk up to his house and knock on the door. How cheeky. He is the f- most famous person in the world at that point. So <laughs> if he truly did that, that's kind of a an incident of, of him using his celebrity. And so in Paul's words, they talked about a lot of stuff, but he just clued me into the fact that Vietnam was a very bad war. It was an imperialist war, and American vested interests were really all it was about. It was a bad war, and we should be against it. That is all. It was pretty good from the mouth of the great philosopher. Slip it to me, Bert, Paul being Paul. Well, I think Paul's almost referring to John's thing with the Maharishi. I figure he slipped me the answer, you know. Could be. This particular interview is much, much later. This comes from Barry Miles the many years from now. Right. We're talking about in the 90s when he's telling this story. And there's also a, a really nice bit of video when he was on The View of All Things. I had the luck to meet a guy called Bertrand Russell. Great philosopher. He was definitely a, a great mind. And he was just living in London, and somebody said, oh, he lives on that street. So I went, hey, Bertrand, you know, can I come in? So I talked to him, and he was very gracious, and he actually pointed out to me that the, there was this war going on mm-hmm. called Vietnam. And it, so I went to the studio that evening and said to the guys, hey, you know, met Bertrand and he's really against this war. So I sort of explained to everyone the issue. Now then, after that, John became the activist. I see. But th- that's all I said was I actually introduced him to the issue. He was a catalyst. But, no. Yeah, the catalyst. a catalyst in some way, yeah. Mm-hmm. But no, he, he went on to become the real uh, uh, activist, as you say, with Yoko. They did that bed in and the stuff, bed in, yeah, was which great. was great. It brought yeah. everyone's attention to it. And I always say, people often say to me, do you think music can change the world? Mm-hmm. I say, well, have you ever seen that footage of people chanting, singing, give peace a chance yeah. yes. to the Nixon White House? Yeah. Yes. Uh, that changes. And imagine that. His other song, imagine, imagine yeah. that. You think about that, that's pretty early on to be 
in effect a resistor. You know, it was still in its early days, uh, the Vietnam War. There was still a year where Brian managed to keep them from talking about it. They were having these discussions amongst themselves. Right. Paul had gone back and said, all this war stuff that we're seeing on TV, it's not a good thing. And, well, it's John who really took that message and took it to heart. Again, maybe he was already thinking that way. Yeah. If we assume the Arnhem story is true, it's like, <laughs> yeah, wait a minute. Yeah, I get it. Well, it looks like the bloom is off the Beatles. Last year, not an empty seat in Shea Stadium. This year, thousands. Between there, this is their New York City press conference in 1966, before they played Shea the second time. When asked about the Vietnam War... Which infers there's a, a freedom over there <laughs> that they don't feel in America. You also have to remember that this was after the series of Maureen Cleave interviews. Oh, yeah. Which were very political in their own way. I mean, not just bigger than Jesus. Paul himself on his cover on Datebook has a quote about uh, the way the blacks were treated in the South. Now you know why Brian got sick. Oh my God, what's Ringo going to say? <laughs> then we move on to it really showing up for the first time as a statement, although it's not a, it's not a real serious statement in the word. Yeah, that whole album in a way is kind of literary. He talks about in the word, you know, everywhere I go, I hear it said in the good and the bad books that I have read. And then you find out that girl is based on what he was reading. And even at the time, you know, there's a real intellectual change and the word, it's almost a gospel kind of song. Well, but on the same record, he says, I'd rather see you dead little girl than to be with another man. So, right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the sea change was coming and acid almost kind of interrupted that a little bit they went in inward their reaction to the drug was to think about life in the universe but not necessarily in political terms right. there was nothing overtly political it, per se it was more of a going inside uh, a, a personal revolution of the mind, you know. Through Revolver and through Pepper, there's no real political statements there. Not even love as a global concept. The BBC wanted something. They were going to satellite us around the world, so they wanted something special. So John and Paul wrote, All You Need Is Love, and it was the 60s, and that's what we were all into. It was all peace and love, and we were all in colourful clothes, and so was everyone around us. So yet again, we go to EMI, to the big soundstage. We are actually going to be in front of the world, the whole world at the same time. And here's John Lennon with his song. All you need is love. I think he was given some guidelines as to what the song should be. And part of Lennon's genius comes through in that they kind of wanted everything to be simplistic in the wording so that it was easily understood and you can look at 
the philosophy behind the song, and it's all in short sentences, usually words of one syllable, and then the big, all you need is love. And he just did that perfectly. The youth of the time were listening, coming off of the summer of love, where it was not just love as in free love, but love as in the Christ message. It's also interesting that all you need is love was written and performed and released before they met the Maharishi. And yet they're in a way connected. The love, even the video that was broadcast, you know, the, the flowers and the Maharishi always had flowers and it just all kind of blended together. But the song came much before. They had at least some nominal knowledge of the Maharishi. He, he had been on TV, you know, really since the late 50s. And they've all said that they've at least seen him and heard this guy talking before they actually decided to go into the course. There's a story that the Maharishi was actually in Hamburg during the 62 trip. Not that they ran into each other, but they were there at the same place at the same time. Could be a conspiracy theory. <laughs> and then we move on to the White Album. Well, the single first, John wanted revolution, revolution, the hard revolution, the rock revolution, going out as the Beatles' next single. Do you think the politics of it, Hey Jude was obviously the A-side, but do you think the politics of it might have played into them not splitting it up, not maybe waiting and doing one single and then the other? Because they could have done that. Perhaps there were instances of a record being issued and ended up being flipped. So maybe it was a competition. Is it going to be Hey Jude or is it going to be a revolution? I mean, I don't know that the politics made that much difference. The Stones would put out Street Fighting Man around the same time. I mean, John certainly believes that both the global politics and the Beatles politics were what kept it off being declared the A-side. But the left sort of savaged him a little bit for revolution. They didn't care for the lyrics of what he was saying. Well, some of the left, there are people who objected to the Chairman Mao reference. and Well, in changing the Constitution, it's, uh, Nina Simone actually put out an answer record to it, which was basically, it's going to be all right, but it's only going to be all right after we've managed to tear down the system. Right. John heard it, and he took it in the manner in which it was intended, I think. You know, he wasn't offended by it, but he also didn't really listen to Nina Simone's message. I think John certainly was fully aware that he was a member of a band. He couldn't do exactly what he wanted, necessarily. John w would soon enough adapt to the radical left, but... You know, where was he at this point in time? Or was he just trying to figure it out, you think? I would say that's the case. There's a lot of songwriting going on. The White Album is swirling around, and there are very few songs on that album that have a political point of view. Well, to the point that Paul goes out and makes fun of it in back of the USSR. I just want to sing this Beach Boys-style song. Right. And make these references, which would have its own... Situation for many years, the dreaded uh, Reverend David A. Noble and his uh, far-right conspiracy pamphlets. 
The quote which came from the time with regards to revolution was that Lenin's lyrics express deep skepticism about political radicalism and the single incited rage among critics and activists on the left. You have all these issues and it seems a little naive to just go, it's going to be all right. All right. It's going to be all right. So the rock version was followed by the version on the White Album, Revolution 1, where John seems to have at least moderated his stance a little bit, moderated in becoming more accepting of what these people were telling him, you know, count me out in. Yeah, but that was the first version. I mean, so he started with that. He, he took it out for the single. The single doesn't have it in it, but the video, which he did the vocal live, he put it back in. John's own statement about revolution, Revolution 9, if you move past the actual sound collage and listen to the pieces together, it is indeed a statement of revolution. You move past just sort of the business of the sound collage, which is interesting from a musical standpoint, the pieces that John has chosen, now, you know, not so much the weird poetry and some of the backward sounds, but he has put together this collage of revolution and to a certain extent, violent revolution. Right. I don't know that that necessarily comes through listening to it. It's pretty cacophonous and you hear bits and pieces. It's hard for me to listen to it as a narrative, but if that's the basis of it and then everything else was put on afterwards to make it more cacophonous, then that's a revolution too. At this period of time, Yoko is coming into the picture. How much do you think Yoko had to play with John's, increasing interest in presentation of more radical politics. I asked Yoko once about her influence on revolution number nine. And her response was, well, that is a Lennon and McCartney copyright. And, <laughs> and that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> so just take her off. She's got nothing to do with revolution number nine. This is really the point at which John starts to look at a number of these issues in a slightly different way. Right. And you could just as easily say that Yoko also had a different point of view. It's their two points of view coming together and it's them now starting to notice some of these people that are writing them letters and asking them things and telling them things. Right. And I, I don't think it's a matter of Yoko influenced John to do any of this. I think they both conceived of all this together. And Yoko wasn't promoting peace in her work before all this. So they put all this together themselves. They weren't talking about peace or global equality when they put a chessboard with all white pieces on there. But that's the statement which has become. Right. Although it is political, because if you make it all the same, then that is a political statement. Everything is equal. There is no opposing side. 
of a different color. Then as 69 progressed and as the Beatles became less of an ongoing thing, they did a show at the Alchemical Wedding in 1969. The show was interrupted by protesters who were carrying this banner saying, do you care, John Lennon? Do you care? And they were talking about Biafra. And this was apparently the first time John had ever actually sat down and thought about Biafra. Food and medical supplies are being withheld by political expediency, which makes a muck of the whole machinery of international aid. Instead of a flood of nourishment and comfort, only a meager trickle of support is reaching stricken Biafra. Although it's interesting that he wouldn't dive into it when it was George who was taking up that cause a couple years later. He was busy. It's a little bit of a joke that he then turned around and said, uh, well, okay, I'm sending back my MBE because of Biafra, because of Britain's support of Vietnam, and because Colts Turkey is slipping down the charts. A political statement, but it's it's laced with that humor. That was a big part of his thoughts about how to do this. Be humorous about it, because, you know, if you're violent, they will kick your head in. Yeah, it's back to my thought that Lenin never really fit in real well politically with the radical left. He was influenced by it. At the bed ends, he was talking to the kids in Berkeley. What he told them was... Don't agitate them. Just go away. It's the piece of land's not worth it. We're artists and not politicians, not newspaper men and not anything. We're artists. We do it in the way that suits us best. And this is the way, this is the way we work. And that's the, the trade I've learned. And I'm using it to the best of my ability. We did a stunt. It sort of happened, but we did it. There was Ringo Starr and Peter Sellers' premier, Magic Christian. And Yoko and I arrived just at the same time as Princess Margaret, which would have gotten news mm -hmm. anyway. Mm -hmm. Also, we were in a white rolls with Britain killed, murdered Han Ratty on. All the police were trying to get the crowd to pull it off. And we also came out of the... We came exactly behind their car, bang, like that. The press were going mad idea. as if every Beatle was there, you know, like it was Beatlemania. Mm -hmm. We timed it, you know, I mean, whoever timed it just right, you know. Mm -hmm. We didn't plan it. Somebody suggested, you know, doing it like that. But I said, I don't want to do it like that, you know. But it happened. Mm. We got out of the car with these posters saying Britain murders Hanratty. The press were going berserk, TV and everything. Next day, not a peep. Mm. Now, if they're going to put in about me shaving, you know, mm. they even if I hadn't had the posters, they would have put Lennon insults Margaret mm. and Tony. But they don't want to know about the hanging case. But we're not going down on any side whether the guy's innocent or not. We're anti-killing. His response was humorous, and it was really much more apolitical. It was humanitarian rather than political. Agreed. But that would bring him in touch once again with the British new left, the radical left. And the word we're hearing from the perspective of 50 years is that they didn't care about Biafra. And they didn't care anything about what was going on there other than, the well, they didn't like the British government. And you're talking about the left. The left, yes, correct. It was bringing John in contact with Tarek Ali and some of those people. Well, he was ter clearly turning political. And so I think people in the movement saw that as, well, let's talk to him, like going to Bertrand Russell. Two of the big alternative publications at the time in Britain were Red Mole and Black Dwarf. I guess they like colors. <laughs> right. But both of them were writing stories about John Lennon. Sometimes they were saying things in support of him. Sometimes they were saying things against him. 
but they were clearly trying to draw him into their politics. They were more radical. And up to that point, they were hearing stuff like, give peace a chance and that sort of thing. And they just saw Lenin as being more political. Yeah, I don't know if they were just trying to use John. Why were they trying to pull John into their orbit? Well, he was John Lennon. <laughs> well, this is true. But I mean, you know, when it was really kind of clear that the direction John wanted to go in was to be a peacenik, was to aid people through humanitarian means. Right. War is over if you want it. It was a jumble of a bunch of different viewpoints. You know, the peace movement was never neat or tidy or organized this is true although john actually seems to have fit in much better in canada both during the bed in and when he got to see the prime minister trudeau was someone who would listen to him and well if it's to believe they uh, indulged in in some pot while they were there <laughs> when you went to go visit the prime minister did the dogs give you the sniff or no we met him so no thing you know but the president, I mean, the prime minister had his own stuff. Come on. I'm not kidding you, baby. <laughs> and, and it was almost as good as John's. What's <laughs> <laughs> bad? Wait, you got stoned with Pierre Trudeau? Well, I, I don't know whether he did or not, but I certainly did. <laughs> <laughs> that, I suppose, is a piece of the politics we haven't really talked about. John was clearly, if not necessarily pro-drug, he wanted what we would now call decriminalization. Yes, for sure. He wasn't going out there and advocating it. It's the same thing that Paul said. I've done it. Here's what I got out of it, but I'm not telling you to go do it. It's a perfect response. I mean, everybody is responsible to themselves. I'm not telling you to do it, but I'm doing it. But the reception of the British government did seem to antagonize him, and you know, maybe that helped to drive him into the arms of these people. Look at how badly they're treating you, John. Let's talk about this. <laughs> what, what is it the queen was supposed to have said? Or? Queen says no to pot-smoking FBI members. <laughs> yeah. At one point she said something about, they seem to be getting a bit strange, aren't they? There's so much involved in John's personal life because while all this is going on busted for drugs and and yoko and cynthia and and oh yeah his band broke up or he broke up the band and all this stuff is going on and the british press was being relentless particularly about strange john lennon and his japanese girlfriend emphasis on japanese dick gregory was part of uh, the unicef benefit that john put on, at least in part for wars over if you want it. And what he said was that I've never seen a relationship that was as equal. It would have been very easy for him to just be John Lennon. The press didn't want this Asian to be part of it. You can see that, and that would stick with John throughout the rest of his life, really. Right. Racism, not so much racism as in, you know, we were talking about segregation and all of that earlier, but it's firsthand here. Yeah. That, to a certain extent, is what would really drive him out of England. That and the fact that Yoko really wanted to go back to the States. He definitely wanted to come here himself. As he said, it's like New York City is what Rome was. He really came to love New York City, and he desired it. And, of course, that's going to bring him to a whole new group. The last thing he did in England was the Imagine album. Imagine the song and imagine the album. And John had a very clear understanding of what he was saying in those lyrics. <laughs> he was 
definitely preaching his philosophy. And so a lot of the other speculation, a lot of times it's like, he's pretty clear in this song. One thing we didn't mention in there, there was power to the people. So he was going back and forth at this point in time. Do you see them as conflicting? Power to the people is not so much about change. And it's not even necessarily about utopia. It may be how do you get to this utopia but do you think power of the people is advocating violent revolution no i think it was advocating demonstration which john and yoko did absolutely take part in they were big believers in, in gandhi demonstrating in telling people what is on their mind without blowing things up right i don't think he's telling people to go out and throw rocks or throw bombs through people's windows but Power to the People has at least just a touch of that. Well, you know, it starts off with marching feet. <laughs> you say you want a revolution, you better get it on right away. But that doesn't necessarily mean violent revolution. You remember the third verse is all about women's rights. I don't see that that was advocating of, of violence. As I said, I feel like it's about get out there. Maybe it's his version of vote. Vote with your feet. It's interesting you bring up the women's rights thing. John seemed to be much more strongly into women's rights. Well, once he got together with Yoko, once he actually listened to the story, it's like, yeah, you're right. I've treated women badly my whole life, and they really are the other half of the sky, as he would say many years later, right. quoting, quoting Chairman, Chairman McDougal. Well, you know, there's no going back and going this person, this person, this person. But clearly there were people within the Beatles organization that treated Yoko shabbily. And it was that way in England as well. So I think that there were many occasions where Yoko was able to go. And then there was this. Sounds like, oh, wow. Yeah, I never saw that. He certainly got it and got it early. I mean... He was writing about that, what, 72? Yep. It wasn't just sometime in New York City. It's, no. It had been lingering for a while. At that point, yes, he moves to the U.S. And, well, as you say, they really encountered a, a whole different crowd. And the folks that they intertwined themselves with in the U.S. were a different breed than the radicals, which they had been interacting with in the UK. There were differences in the peace movement in the United States between the East Coast and the West Coast. Shall always be thus, I guess. And so the peace movement, political movement in the UK was completely different. They might share certain goals, but when he came to the United States, you know, he met up with Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman, and they were coming off the Chicago riots and all the legal ramifications of that. A handful of police clubbed a protest leader. And in late August, outside the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, around 10,000 protesters squared off with about 23,000 police and National Guard troops. And all hell broke loose. In less than a minute, what had been a relatively quiet crowd was a raging mob. Seven months later, the government charged the suspected ringleaders with, among other things, conspiracy and crossing state lines to incite a riot. At first, there were eight Chicago defendants, Jerry Rubin, Abby Hoffman, Tom Hayden, Rennie Davis, Bobby Seale, Lee Weiner, John Froines, and David Dellinger. Considering everything that John would be intertwining in his 
personal life and his political issues, it was probably not a good idea for him to be hanging out with these folks. Not to mention the <laughs> fact that Richard Nixon was scared of John Lennon anyway. Well, yeah. <laughs> he had the bad fortune of coming to America when we had a really paranoid president. So, yeah, he was very naive. How long ago was his bust? So, yeah, that was going to be a problem, particularly if you make enemies of the administration of the United States. Oh, yeah, then I'm going to connect with Jerry Rubin. <laughs> and Abby Hoffman, yeah. And a few people in the Black Panthers organization. They should love that. You look at who John and Yoko invited to be with them on the Mike Douglas show during that whole week. It's an interesting group of people. But, you know, they're the three you mentioned, uh, and... Jerry Rubin and Mike Douglas is is a sight to behold. <laughs> right. Those two sharing a stage. But you also look at who they invited. They invited George Carlin and they invited Ralph Nader to be on the show with them, who are much more what I would call in line with what I think John's genuine politics were. Yeah, I'm not sure how that process worked. You know, I'm sure they were able to come on and say, we would like to bring Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman, you know. Uh, Mike Douglas basically gave them free reign for two-thirds of the guests. Right. I don't know how many that is or who they specifically chose. I'm sure showrunners had some ideas. It was a, a diverse panel, and I go back and I've seen some of the clips, and I'm just, I'm really proud of him. It cost them both to do that in this country. There's the film John Lennon versus the U.S. and there's a tremendous book by his uh, immigration lawyer, uh, Leon Wilde, tells the whole story of going through the fight against the United States government and then how they eventually won. But for a while, coming over here, joining these people, presenting this front, because there were a few more events coming down the road that were of the same ilk. And then the rumors flying around, they just kept coming. The big one, John has denied that there was ever any real plans for a tour. Right. But Jerry Rubin has said that Ann Arbor, the Michigan show, was a dry run. They were going to go and tour everywhere the RNC was having their <laughs> conventions. Right. It's like, oh, well, we had all these plans. By 1980, John was like, no, 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 that was never the plan. You know, maybe someone had bought it up as an idea, but I was never on board. The government certainly thought he was on board. You could easily see how that happened. Well, again, you know, back then, it was, there was a paranoid time. It was not nice <laughs> for a lot of people. Wiretaps. And, and as John tells us, his phone was bugged. Yeah. Although it's funny. Uh, you know, we've got the transcripts or some of the transcripts. I wonder if those original tapes still exist somewhere. Right. I wonder what Giles Martin could do with that. <laughs> Peter Jackson. There you go. Yeah. I remember watching that show when he said that he was being wiretapped. There are people in the audience who laughed because they just thought that was the most ridiculous thing. Yeah, and again, he mentions that in the Playboy interview. It's like, oh, Lennon, you're you're so big-headed. Why on earth would anyone want to wiretap you? Yeah. But, I mean, they were smart enough. They saw the proverbial black van following them around. Yeah. As he came to America, he just continued to do things that were going to totally piss off the government. 
And then there was the John Sinclair rally. You know, that's right in the middle of the radical hippie movement because marijuana was going to destroy the country. Well, and not to mention the Sometime in New York City album. I mean, you know, we've been talking about this and the politics are still difficult for a lot of people to get. Right. You know, separate from just that one song. It's not something that people want to hear in 2022. Which song are we talking about? Well, well, the, there, there's that song. The you know, woman is the people certainly don't want to that. hear that. But you know, Angela or John Sinclair or things have changed a lot. But uh, you know, even Luck of the Irish, there were questions about John and his involvement with the IRA or lack thereof. Right. But in in a lot of ways, the end of John's dabbling with radical politics was the night after Nixon won, as it would end up being the temporary end of. His marriage to Yoko. Right. John was supposedly so upset over Nixon's victory that he just got himself completely plastered and, well, took a a, a nubile young woman into the bedroom and made sure everyone heard him. Did she have to be nubile? That's the story. I, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I have no name for this woman. Right. I can't believe she has to come forward and that maybe she would be at a, a Beetle Fest or something. <laughs> Now, that would be funny. <laughs> Although right. we have had some other young women come forward during <laughs> uh, from towards the end of the last weekend. And, well, <laughs> anyway, now who's driving us toward the tabloid? Right. right. Yeah, that the Nixon victory was a huge thing. And, of course, it was just shortly after that that the government took action against Lenin. And I think that that necessarily chilled his radicalism. And so, you know, we're... What we're going to get are things like mind games, which is very soft in its approach. Although we do get like free to people, which is kind of a return to give peace a chance, Lennon. Yeah, but doesn't everything seem more soft pedaled? He wasn't looking to stir anything up. And you look at the other concert that he did around then, you know, Willowbrook, which is a humanitarian thing. Right. We won't go into Geraldo and the fact that Geraldo is now a Fox News guy, but it's a little bit ironic to me. Geraldo, who was once an, an icon of the left, is now spouting the company line. <laughs> well. <laughs> I, I would love to hear what John would have thought of that. Yeah. It'd, uh, <laughs> it'd be interesting to hear what John would have thought of quite a few things over the years <laughs> or for that matter i would have loved to see john laughing over the al capone vaults incident <laughs> oh that's yeah. silly geraldo yeah bits and pieces of politics came up through the house husband years and through into 1980 he went to the carter inaugural he was invited and went right that would have been not too long after he got his green card right yep and then, you know, he did spend most of the next three or four years raising Sean, but, you know, he would occasionally come out and, and, and say this or that about something going on politically. You know, although, not again, nothing particularly strong or particularly radical. Right. The story, which we may or may not believe, uh, comes to us from Fred Seaman, you know, uh, John's assistant and, well, not necessarily a trustworthy guy. You're not going to spread that nasty rumor, are you? He claims that John <laughs> did not support Jimmy Carter. And he claims that John told him he wasn't going to vote for Carter in 1980. 
Well, I mean, and by inference, you're you're saying that he would have voted for the other guy. Well, the other guy, the other guy who he who who, who he kind of liked because he met him at a football game. <laughs> Frank, that was some night in the broadcast booth. Brent, we've had a lot of memorable moments on Monday night. I'll never forget that one. I ran into John Lennon with a publicity agent I knew that afternoon. I invited him, never dreamed he would show up. We already had Ronald Reagan scheduled. Howard was going to do him. When Howard found out one of the Beatles would be there, I'll take the Beatle giffer. <laughs> and he did. But uh, it is a great night. But I remember mostly looking around to make sure that he was there. And just before the end of the first half, I saw the future president with his arm around John Lennon explaining football to John Lennon and I thought boy this is what it's all about these guys are political and philosophical poles apart and maybe there is something good about this game <laughs> you never heard that story no, no so the night John Lennon was on Monday Night Football the other guest was then Governor Reagan so Cosell just turned around and said you take the governor and I'll take the beetle <laughs> I just can't imagine Lennon supporting him I tend to agree, and you know he also may have just been leading Fred on. Right. John had a lot of friends uh, in, from California who certainly would have been well aware of Reagan's governorship, and so I can't imagine that he had a good view of the good governor. Again, going back to the Playboy interview, no matter what he said, he also says that he didn't vote. He said he'd never voted. Right. Which is a reason to think, well, maybe he was just leading Fred on. <laughs> right. You know, maybe he would just like to rile Fred Seaman up. <laughs> Something John Lennon was very good at. Yeah. That takes us to the end of this story. One more quote I want to read here from the Playboy interview. Disillusioned with harsh, overreaching yippies like Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman, Lennon now emphasized individual responsibility rather than collective political action. Produce your own dream. If you want to go save Peru, go save Peru. It's quite possible to do anything, but not if you put it on the leaders and the parking meters. Don't expect Carter or Reagan or John Lennon or Yoko Ono or Bob Dylan or Jesus Christ to come down and do it for you. You have to do it yourself. Right. I really don't think John's politics changed all that heavily. He dabbled and he certainly got obsessed in much the same way he got obsessed with Jan Oliver Maharishi, particularly the American left. But I don't know how he necessarily felt really and truly about the politics. Right. He may have just ended up thinking, well, everybody sucks to some degree. That's what he says in the Playboy interview as well, is that the song Woman is the is not just about the past. It's well, where are your women? Why why are your women always just off over there making tea or or pizza rolls. Or pizza rolls. <laughs> Why aren't they sitting here in the middle of it, particularly when we're making decisions about them? Right. This has been a real interesting discussion. I think this puts uh, not just sometime in New York City, but John's politics into some context. Or some confusion. <laughs> he was a complex guy. Very much so. And honest about his journey, I think, for the most part. I mean, he was not beyond sculpting a narrative that kind of brings us back around to what i said at the beginning i think yoko has kind of sanitized it a little bit <laughs> right she wants the story to be that oh well you know john lennon was a peacenik and he went straight from all you need is love to get peace a chance to the bed ends to war is over to 
oh, and then Nixon was just picking on him because of that. Just plastering over the facts which don't fit the story she had tried to tell. Yeah. And and she certainly has that right, but... And, and it may be a matter of um, simplifying the story. You know, the fact that he is a point of interest, someone who has become a historical figure, you know, she may work at uh, kind of simplifying the story so that this is what you remember of John. He fought for peace. Very good. We'll leave it there. Uh, next week, uh, Darren Murphy's back with us. We're going to talk uh, a little bit more about the Lennon show, which we discussed with Stephen Dosser last week, and then also his uh, his run across the country with Todd Rundgren yeah. on the Rubber Soul Revolver Tour. He's got lots of stories. Should be fun. Yeah. All well, right. We'll see you then. Bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Your song Revolution. Yeah. Uh, you wanted to change a few of the words from count me in to count me out or count me uh, out no, to it, count I me in. No, I have both versions. There's there's a, a revolution, versions. there's three versions. Number one, but number two, that. and number nine. Number nine is an abstract picture of, of revolution. Number one was the single because the other boys didn't like number... No, the number two is the single because the other boys didn't like number one. They said it wasn't fast enough, so I made it fast. And sometimes I said count me in, count me out. The thing I regret was making a reference to Chairman Mao, which might spoil any chances I have of going to visit China, like those ping-pong people do. I'd love to go and see what's happening there. And, but I wrote the Chairman Mao line in the studio because I didn't have any words. What I was trying to say to the Maoists, or anybody that wanted to change the world, why go and stand in front of a policeman with a red communist flag in your hand and a big suit and all like that, and then get hit? I thought it was unsubtle. So in the song, I wasn't putting down revolution. I was saying, isn't that a bit unsubtle? But if you want to really change the thing, do it subtly in a way that the establishment can't attack, i.e. Th theatre in court and or bed events, two virgins, things like that. Things that the establishment don't understand, therefore they can't kill it. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals. But they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. <laughs>